Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, Ontario is warming up to the hotspot strategy. Kelly Grant is the health reporter for the Globe and Mail, and she joins us to talk about that and the results of the new policy that the government's enacting. Ontario's engineers are calling on Premier Doug Ford to determine what workplaces require HVAC systems to help address the airborne transmissions of COVID-19. And close to 6,300 of Hamilton's affordable housing units are going to be restored as a result of an investment last week from the federal government. Ward 5 Councillor Chad Collins will talk to us about that. It's all coming up. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. I want to get right into what's happening with COVID and with the vaccination program. Uh, some concerns about what's being happening and then the uh, the rollout on this, of course. There's a lot of concern about exactly uh, where these vaccines are going to be going, quite aside from the concerns that people might have about, uh, you know, the number of vaccines coming from Ottawa. It's really where it's going to be allocated, and that seems to be a major concern right now. Global's Abigail Beeman has some details. There are reports the United States will share its 60 million AstraZeneca doses with the world, potentially good news for Canada. But in the meantime, Pfizer has been providing the most steady supply of vaccines. A little more than a million will arrive this week. And starting next week and for every week in May, two million. Pharmacists are in talks with the province of Ontario to allow them to administer that shot. It's a little more complicated due to the cold storage requirements, but they are hopeful a pilot could roll out this week. As for the other vaccines, Moderna has had delays, but the federal procurement minister says we are expecting 650,000 to arrive midweek. And then for the first time, Time, the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, 300,000 doses of the vaccine that needs just one shot. It will arrive at the end of this week and be distributed to provinces next week. Abigail Beeman, Global News, Ottawa. So the question here and the key here is where are those vaccines going to go? Um, you know, because the, the province had one particular way of doing a rollout. And it was really just by demographics. You know, let's start with the, the oldest and most vulnerable and just work our way down uh, through different age demographics. But the spike we've had in the last little while has suggested that uh, it's about time to maybe relook at that and, and, and talk about exactly where we can go. And this is where the idea about hotspots came up. Uh, Kelly Grant is the health reporter for the Globe and Mail. A uh, great piece in the, the Globe this morning about uh, warming up to the hotspots strategy and this a very uh, a detailed account of exactly what's happening right across the country and uh, Kelly Grant joins us on the Bill Kelly show to talk about this Kelly thank you for the time uh, great to have you back on the show today hey thanks for having me uh, interesting piece and, and a very timely obviously because of the debate that's going on right now uh, about uh, about I guess focusing in uh, about where these vaccines should go uh, we had uh, dr. Peter uni uh, on the program of course from the health science table last week talking about this uh, how's this coming across and how are they pivoting or are they pivoting to the extent that they should to focus on some of these hot spots yeah so to talk about the Ontario government and the province of Ontario, yeah. maybe I'll just start by explaining what they're doing now and where it looks like they're considering pivoting. So they decided uh, early on in April to to take uh, a bit of a hotspot approach. It's not quite as uh, aggressive as the science table would like, but they they have definitely been doing some hotspotting and more than some other provinces. So what the provincial government did was they picked 114 postal codes. There's been some controversy over the ones they picked, but setting that aside for a moment, they're basically places that have historically throughout this seen really elevated rates of COVID cases, hospitalizations, and deaths. And what they said in these places was, okay, if you live in this postal code, everybody over 18 is eligible for a vaccine. And then they they have decided to send about 25% of all the vaccines that come to Ontario to these hotspots, to these hotspots, pardon me. So they're trying to do a combination of 
more vaccines and more eligibility in these places. What's happening now is that the science table put out a paper on Friday, which is part of the piece I wrote about on the weekend, mm-hmm. saying, you know, let's let's up that. Let's make 50% of all shots go to, to the hotspots and then distribute the remaining shots in a per capita way, including giving that per capita share to those hotspots. So really, you'd wind up with a situation where 60% of the vaccines would go to about 20% of the neighborhoods across the uh, across the province. And they're not talking about doing that forever. They're talking about doing, they think, you know, that they could basically get to, you know, 75, 80% of people in these hotspots in less than a month. So they're talking about like a real quick blitz for one month. Let's try to get to something like herd immunity in these places that account for most of the hospitalizations and deaths. And a lot of these uh, area codes, and you're right, I don't want to get into the politics of it. We already covered that. Uh, it, but it's it's where it is right now, and let's talk about that. Uh, Jane Finch is one of the areas, of course, uh, in the northwest part of Toronto. I actually lived in Shoreham, halfway between Steeles and Finch, for a number of years when I was working in Toronto. So I know the area. It's very racialized, uh, very diverse, uh, as, as a number of the other areas are that have been picked out in this whole thing. What's the uptake on this? I mean, because the biggest concern, Kelly, you know, when they were talking about doing this a couple of weeks ago was, well, it's only going to be as good as people showing up, and, and they don't seem to show much interest in this. What's, what's the reality here? So the reality, I think, is quite different from that. I think before we can talk about vaccine hesitancy, we need to talk about access. Mm -hmm. So I actually spent some time last week um, up near Jane and Finch going with a vaccine team that was out in a couple of the apartment buildings there. And, you know, they got great uptake, right? They nearby at the same time, they also had some pop-up clinics at uh, the Driftwood Community Center, one at an outdoor basketball court at Tobermory, and people lined up before dawn. Uh, I mean, there was a real hunger in this community to get their hands on these vaccines. I think what is different now is that they're talking about doing the hotspotting, not just in terms of like sending doses, but in terms of having community groups, people in the neighborhood who are trusted, um, who are well-known by their neighbors, going out and knocking on doors and saying, hey, this is where you can get a vaccine. This is why you should get a vaccine. And that's making a real difference. So, I mean, I think... I think really before we get to sort of being concerned about hesitancy, the problem initially for a lot of these communities is access. They don't necessarily have cars. They don't necessarily speak English as a first language or have a ton of computer skills. I mean, I think we probably all know lots of people who are, you know, pretty good with the English and the computer and have a car and lots of money and free time and work at their desks all day. And they've had trouble finding finding a way to navigate Ontario's vaccination system. So, you know, I think a big part of the hotspot program is recognizing that the first thing that has to be solved in these communities that have so far had low uptake is access. And, uh, and, And that, I think, is really starting to happen, especially in the city of Toronto. It's kind of flown under the radar, but I think they've really done a great job of running a ton of these sort of like door-to-door mobile pop-up clinics in the neighborhoods that need the most. Um, and I, I think that will continue to ramp up. Well, and I guess, as you mentioned in the piece uh, in the Globe and Mail, uh, one of the reasons for that is because John Tory has just embraced this program. I mean, he's been advocating for it for some time. Uh, so uh, it's, it's not surprising that he wanted to go 100% into this. 
Yeah, and they really, um, the last week, they've gone even sort of, they've, they've really gone all in in Toronto. Is They're not just focusing on these hotspot neighbourhoods that the province has identified. They've gone sort of even narrower and are putting, you know, sort of more resources into getting vaccines out to about 13 priority neighbourhoods where they're just seeing the large number of cases. It's just really stark when you look at um uh, this, uh, the city of Toronto in particular, because their data is quite good, so we can see it. I mean, the difference between like the sort of well-off neighborhoods where people can work from home versus the neighborhoods where the vast majority of people live in sort of substandard crowded housing and also have jobs where they have to, you know, work as essential workers and can't stay home. But the difference in the cases, hospitalizations and deaths is just, it's incredibly striking. Mm-hmm. And I think the pattern has held, that pattern has held true as far as I understand it, um, to a certain extent in places like Hamilton and like London and other parts of, of the province as well. And there's a, there's a, you know, for people to think, well, this is just another shot in the dark, you know, just a dart on the board here to see, well, if this works. Uh, it's been tried in other jurisdictions, and, and you mentioned as, as a point of reference Prince Rupert where they've tried something like this, and it turned out to be pretty effective. Yeah, Prince Rupert was a really interesting example. For people who don't know it, it's a, a city of about 12,000 on the northwest coast of British Columbia. It's got fairly high rates of poverty. It's got a large indigenous community. And they were sort of the hottest spot in British Columbia on a per capita basis in sort of late February, kind of early March. And they just decided to go into the community and say, the vaccines are available to everybody over the age of 18. They just sort of blitzed. And I think in like eight days, they basically got almost everybody from the community. And it just brought their cases right down. I think they had in the most recent week, three cases. So they getting everybody, I mean, I, when you stop and think about it, like, it seems fairly obvious. If you can get everybody vaccinated, it really does bring the cases down. Now, of course, it takes time for the vaccines to work. But um, it, it it does seem to make a difference to concentrate the vaccines so that you increase the likelihood of at least in a specific geographic area, you make it easier to get closer to something akin to herd immunity. The takeaway here, well, there's many good takeaways. It's a great piece. Uh, but is is that idea that there's this myth about vaccine hesitancy, and I know it exists, but they're thinking, well, in these racialized neighborhoods, they just don't care. There's no interest in this. And and we're hearing the same thing here in Hamilton. Uh, That's why the the, the piece that you wrote, I think, just really resonated, because we're hearing from an awful lot of ethnic groups and racialized groups in Hamilton saying, you're not talking to us. You know, we're dying to get into the program here. You're not coming to us. You're not. They are doing this in the Toronto area, in the GTA, and it's worked very effectively. Uh, And and it just seems as if it was a stone we had not turned over yet to say, can we do something like this. And I'm glad to hear the uptake is as as strong as it is in these areas. Mm -hmm. I mean, really what they've seen is like pop-ups lined lined up and people, unfortunately, getting turned away. I I mean, that's the the sort of downside here is that they don't quite have enough vaccine yet to to genuinely offer Mm -hmm. it, you know, completely to completely throw open the doors and give it immediately to everyone over the age of 18 in these neighborhoods. But now that may be about to change. Um, the supplies are really picking up in the month of May. So um, as a country, we're getting 2 million doses a week. Ontario's share of that, that, and that's just Pfizer. Ontario's share of that will be probably close to a million doses. Um, so they'll have a lot more um, latitude to both hotspot to sort of focus um a large portion of the supply on the places that are really facing the most ca- most cases while continuing to vaccinate people over the age of 60 and continuing to vaccinate teachers. And they just announced this morning that they're going to be vaccinating uh, child care workers. So, you know, they, they have some room to 
play now. You know what I mean? Because there are just so many vaccines coming. So I, I hope that the outcome won't be that certain communities feel as though they're being deprived or left behind because, you know, their most at risk members, people over the age of 60, will continue to be able to get vaccines. There's enough coming in. Well, I, yeah, it's putting the cart before the horse to just say we need more vaccines. If you don't know how to get them out there and get them into arms, uh, you've got a problem. That's where they end up sitting in warehouses. But what's happened here, and as, as you've mentioned in the piece, they've already decided this is the protocol. This is what we're going to do. And, hey, it works. All we need now is more product. And uh, as you said, the, the news apparently is that May is going to be a very good month for getting this product in uh, from both the United States and, and other jurisdictions, too, uh, which is only going to enhance these programs, I would think. But not everybody buys into this. I know you talked uh, with a, a professor uh, Fabro from uh, the University of Calgary. Alberta's not doing this, and there's a lot of folks in in, in Alberta that are not pleased about that. Yeah. So what Alberta, what the Alberta government has said is like, look, we feel as though things are bad everywhere, uh, and I mean things are on a on a per capita basis. Ontario, or excuse me, Alberta has more cases than Ontario has more cases than any other province right now. So what their position is, is like, look, we don't see our cases concentrated in the same way that perhaps some other parts of the country do. Now, there are some folks, including some doctors who are working on the front line who say, no, 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 we, we see a, a big and apparent difference, mainly between people who are working in, industri- in essential and industrial industries versus, you know, those who have the ability to stay home. Um, so Alberta is a touch of an outlier and that they really have sort of resisted the idea of hot spotting, but um, we'll see how that goes uh, in future. They're having, you know, they're, they're facing a really difficult situation now, so they, they may start to rethink this. I'm interested, too, about this plan of attack to, to use well-known people within those communities uh, to spread the word as opposed to simply, well, you know, I guess the, the, the way they would ordinarily do it, you know, at, you know, TV, radio ads, newspaper, whatever the case might be, and maybe some online stuff. But but to actually have people from, from those communities to say, look, this is good. you got to do this. And the... the, the well, it comes to mind immediately, of course, is, is the Aboriginal MPP uh, who actually got railed by, by the Premier for actually going up and doing this. But most of the people in the community followed his lead and did this. Is that, is that happening in some of these neighbourhoods too? It is, and it's a really key part of these hotspot programs that work well. So just try to imagine if you were a person who was like, you know, not sort of dogmatically anti-vax, but, you know, you'd read a few things that concerned you when you were a bit on the fence. And then a neighbour somebody you know really well or perhaps the head of the PTA or the owner of a local business or, you know, the local priest, the local imam, somebody who you really know and trust knocks on your actual door and says, hey, you know, somebody's going to be coming to run a pop-up clinic in the lobby of our building this week. Um, We can even bring the vaccine right to you. You know, do you have any questions? I took it a month ago and you know what, like, you know, my side effects were fine. I feel really good knowing that even though I don't have perfect protection because I haven't had a second shot yet. I've had a first shot and it's really, you know, it's given me some peace of mind. I feel great. I mean, just for almost anybody, that kind of support from a person you know and trust is really helpful. Then add on to it, in the case of Jane and Finch, for example, the vaccination clinic is right in the lobby of your building or it's right across the street at the community theater or there's a, you're housebound and there's a team coming door to door to give you a vaccine versus Prior to them doing these pop-ups, they had one mass immunization clinic, which is at that a place called The Hangar. You know, there was basically one bus from Jane and Finch at odd hours that 
takes you to the hangar and it drops you off like ways away that you have to walk. Like I recognize that, you know, some people look at this and think, well, God, I'd crawl over cut glass to get a vaccine at this point. But, you know, those barriers are real for people and having a community advocate who comes and not only says, Hey, I had a good experience, but also like here is where and how you can get a vaccine and it's easy and it's nearby. That makes a big difference. We've had some, uh, shows about some of the challenge neighborhoods in the Hamilton area too and there's, there's something that I learned which is rather fascinating you're talking to some of the folks that are social service people that are doing this they say in some of these neighborhoods uh, the people that live are born there grow up there but they never go more than four or five blocks away from their neighborhood they just don't uh, because mm-hmm. they can't afford bus passes they don't have cars uh, they don't see that there's anything so when, it, when a place like Hamilton says okay there's a clinic at the arena downtown that means nothing to them but if you bring the clinic to them, and that's what they're doing here, uh, all of a sudden you've got a successful enterprise. And I think that, uh, totally. And I also think the thing to remember is that, like, everybody benefits from having these communities vaccinated. Obviously, the priority is trying to help these communities themselves because so many of them are falling sick and dying. So that's the number one priority. But then if you are able to control the outbreak in places that have a huge number of cases, you know, that has a positive spillover effect to other parts of the province. It helps to reduce the number of people in hospitals so that the system isn't on the verge of collapse as it is right now. Uh, it really does have a lot of benefits, both for the people who get a needle in their arm immediately and for everyone else. Well, as you mentioned in the piece, too, the, the, the letter from the science table, the study they've done here, uh, shows that if they follow this pattern, there's going to be dramatic uh, decreases in the number of hospitalizations and new cases. So uh, I send people to the webpage and go and check this out. Kelly Grant is the health reporter for the Globe and Mail. Uh, always a pleasure, Kelly. Thanks so much for the great work that you're doing, and thanks for spending some time with us today. Okay, thanks for having me. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. One of the key things we have to do as we start our recovery and, and continue to battle this COVID, especially the uh, the third wave and the, the variants, uh, is we have to talk about COVID being spread in the workplace. And, uh, well, we talked about that in long-term care facilities, too. And part of the problem here is uh, old infrastructure in some of these workplaces and in some of these facilities. Uh, and it's got to be fixed. There's no two ways about it. You can wear masks all day long, but if you've got a, a lousy air circulation system, you got problems. And uh, that's why we're seeing some of this spread. Well, uh, to that end, uh, the Ontario Society of Professional Engineers have written a letter to the Premier uh, suggesting a number of different initiatives about what can be done and also offering their expertise in this. Uh, to try to get this done, because uh, it's one of the key elements, I think, of any, any recovery plan. Uh, Sandra Perusa is the CEO of the Ontario Society of Professional Engineers, joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show uh, to talk about this. Sandra, thank you so much for the time. Glad you could be with us today. Well, thank you for having me, Bill. This is this is interesting stuff, Sandra. We've been talking about this for, well, over a year now, as we've talked about some of the deplorable conditions in long-term care facilities. And I'm talking about the buildings themselves, uh, some of the older facilities. But now we're starting to hear it, Sandro, in, uh, in workplaces, in warehousing, in places of this nature. Uh, and the spread, now that we know it's airborne, uh, can really be adversely affected by the, the very working conditions. And uh, it's it's something that really needs to be done. I, it's got to be, I would think, be moving up toward the top of the list here. It's a priority, isn't it? It is a priority, and unfortunately, I don't think it's being taken seriously enough. We wrote a letter way back uh, in, in uh, January when the schools were closed in December saying, you know, before you open up schools again, you need to look at the ventilation systems because although the government had, uh, you know, said we looked at the ventilation systems and we think they're fine, uh, they're not fine 
when you take into consideration that we have an airborne uh, aerosol that's causing the pandemic to, to spread. Uh, you know, ASHRAE, the American Society of Heating, uh, Refrigeration, Air Conditioning Engineers, which is an international uh, group, released a standard specifically for how ventilation systems need to be set up for aerosols, for aerosol viruses. And that's a standard that should be met, not the standard that currently exists for building codes. Well, let's talk about that. Uh, you know, because I, I saw that report, and we talked with the minister at the time. In fact, we talked with the premier at the time, and they said, no, we're, we're working on that, we're addressing it, and everything's going to be fine, and the ones that need to be fixed are going to get fixed. Uh, but, but it's the standard, isn't it, Sandro? I mean, you know, who's doing the inspections, first of all? Are they professionals? Uh, do they understand this? Or, you know, we, we, you don't know. I mean, you know, one sentence in a press release does not necessarily encompass everything that needs to be done in a situation like this. Why don't they call on an... Uh, an organization like yourselves who've been doing this for you know how many years now and say yeah we can lend our expertise here i mean basically that's what you're doing is offering a helping hand yeah we've we've asked uh again for those records of who's done the inspections not just us we work with different school board trustees uh who've been asking this exact same question and can't get answers so uh again you know who's doing the work are they qualified are they are they specialists in this field and are they measuring the uh, ventilation systems against that standard that I mentioned? Well, there's a story that came out today, and, and I know the headline's going to say, well, social distancing doesn't really matter. And that's not quite what the report said. It was from the science table, of course, uh, the number of uh, you know experts that have been here in Ontario for the last little while. And essentially what they said was uh, it's, social distancing is not going to be very effective. Wearing masks isn't going to be effective at all if you've got a lousy ventilation system because that keeps that those particles, that those droplets, in the air longer, which means transmission is going to happen a lot more. So, I mean, it, 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 that if alone should should waken up people up at Queen's Park to say, look, you've got to handle this right now. You can handle it all the masks you want. If you've got a lousy ventilation system, it's still going to spread. Exactly. I, I don't think Public Health Ontario has actually officially recognized that it's aerosol, that the aerosol is causing the spread and that the virus is airborne. Uh, you know, again, just very, very recently, uh, when you looked at what the Minister of Education said, that what they were going to do to prepare kids for coming back in April, uh, for the April break before they shut schools down, is, you know, we're going to clean the schools and, and focus on surface contact. Schools have been empty for a week. Whatever virus was in the schools would have been dead over that week. Uh, no mention in that press release anything about uh, ventilation systems. And, I mean, it's very important that Public Health Ontario recognize that the spread is airborne because then a whole new set of protocols need to be implemented. And until that happens, then people refer to the old protocols and, and you know, ref, uh, keep relying on, you know, the blue uh, mass that we buy at the Costco, and those just aren't good enough. But here's the problem. Here's the disconnect, and it's it, it, you're right. It's conflicting information. You've got one government agency, you know, that's saying no, it's not. We don't. We we can't confirm that it's airborne. And we've heard Dr. Williams, the chief medical officer, saying the same thing. But then you're hearing some of the people at the science table, people like Dr. Uni, Dr. Bogosh, and others. And I know these are household names now because of the number of times yeah. they've done media around there. And they're saying, yeah, we've got evidence that it is, and that's the way you should be treating this. And as long as you've got those conflicting points, it's it's an easy cop out for the government to say that. We don't need to. Don't have to do that. Our our experts. It depends on which report you want to, you know, embrace and say. But the reality here is, as as you say, what we do know now is that you know the old thing about oh, I can I can get it off somebody's school desk or something like that is not 
really true. I mean, they, they're saying it doesn't last that long on hard surfaces anymore. It's the airborne aspect of it. So and, and we got to get our act together here about the information we're giving out. By that, I mean the government of Ontario. Uh, so we, uh, we're we all on the same page. <laughs> because basically, what they're doing now is ignoring advice from some of the other medical experts and at their own peril. I mean, look at the numbers, Sandro. I mean, you, you know about the warehousing district in, in, in Peel. I mean, you can drive from Pearson Airport up Airport Road all the way up to, to Mayfield in, in, you know, in Tullamore. And all it is there is warehousing and townhouses where the people from the warehouses are living. And that's one of the highest incidents in Canada right now. And it's not from surfaces. It's airborne stuff. And, and that's where you guys come in. Exactly. I, you know, before I before I was with the Ontario Society of Professional Engineers, I was within the uh, Occupational Health and Safety Prevention System with the province. And, I, you know, I used to go in and consult with these warehouses uh, oh, yeah. and other businesses right across the province as an occupational health and safety professional. And I can tell you, ventilation systems, even before the pandemic, were the most overlooked uh, health and safety prevention system within workplaces. Uh, you know, they don't look, you know, it's more than just is the system working properly. It's how is your workplace set up? How is the workflow set up? So you have a, an area where, you know, you have a high concentration of people working, uh, and then that air circulation flow goes into another area that where people, you know, might be office workers who think, oh, we're safe because it's a low concentration of people working here. But all of a sudden, all that infection, uh, all those virus particles are now being blown into those that area of the workplace where, again, you have people who are, I'm working in my office, I'm working my desk, my, my office door is closed, I'm safe. But meanwhile, the ventilation system um, is, is distributing the virus particles uh, throughout the workplace. Sandra, why can't they understand that? Why don't they know that? That you know, you, you're right. You've been, you could be three floors up from the from the workshop, you know, the area in a warehouse, and that's where your office is. Look up at the ceiling. Look at the vent. That's where it's coming from. It's 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 not coming up the stairwells. It's coming from the ventilation system, and it's in, it, it, it well, it basically permeates the whole building, doesn't it? In a situation like that. Exactly. And I mean, that was, I think, what was causing spread in restaurants as well. You know, sure. that's why even when restaurants were open, I would not go into a restaurant. Uh, I waited till patios were open and I would stay outside. But yeah. uh, I, I don't know what, again, I'm going to refer back on my, you know, 20 years in that occupational health and safety system uh, experience there and just say it's, you know, it's complicated. Uh, people, um, it, you know, think it's, it's going to be a very costly fix, uh, which sometimes it is. Uh, so it's the economics of it, um, you know. So it's better to ignore, uh, to to deflect, to put in cheaper controls that aren't effective, uh, and and the, you know, in the end, you've wasted money and you've made the workplace no more safer. So it's really better to use whatever resources you have the most effective way possible, and it may cost you a little bit more in the short term, but. Just look at what this pandemic is causing our economy. If we had just, you know, put in these protocols way back, you know, last fall, uh, when weather started getting colder and as people started going more indoors, we wouldn't be in the third wave. Well, and, and those numbers bear that out, too. I mean, you know, what the experts are telling us and the doctors that we've talked to here on the science table and others as well are simply saying when you're indoors, the closer you are together and the longer you're indoors, the more probability of, of the virus spreading to other people. And, and I, I know you guys are aware of that, and I know it's included in the letter that you guys sent. The one I've got uh, that you guys sent was dated April 22nd, so I don't know if it's on the premier's desk. Well, he's not at work, so I guess it's not on his desk these days. 
uh, he's he's so at home, I guess, hang, trying to hang in there. He's isolating at home. So, but somebody should be paying attention to this. And by the way, I just want to mention I, I, because I, this is a very important conversation. But but your organization, Sandra, and I think the public should know this, has been very active from day one in this. I mean, engineers have have you know with three D printers of, of, of thousands, I guess, of face shields and frames and and personal protective equipment and everything. I mean, you guys have been in this game right from the beginning, haven't you? Yeah, we have. And uh, I'm very proud of our organization as well. Early on when there was a PPE shortage, we actually leveraged a lot of our suppliers and our members uh, who are not just based in Ontario, but across the globe. And we were able to procure some surgical masks and some hand sanitizer early on, and we donated them to frontline workers. So, I, you know, it's not just providing advice. We actually did also provide some equipment early on uh, when it was in scarce supply. Well, and I know that you've also got an opinion about paid sick days, and I don't want to get you too deep into the political weeds here, but, I mean, you know, your your members are on the front lines, you know, in these workplaces, doing work on a daily basis, and, and they understand the, the conditions that some of these people are in, and it's it's understandable that, you know, they're simply saying, look, if, you know, the experts are telling the government what to do here. The government's got to start paying attention, including uh, to a number of the things that you've talked about here. And I, I get your point. You know, politicians, and you've been in the biz for a long time, Sandra, you know, they're always looking for, you know, to try to save money for the taxpayer, and that's a laudable goal. We get that. But I want a politician to stand up in front of the microphone any time now and say, I know this is the way we should do this to try to curb the spread, but we can't afford to do it. I mean, that's not what they want to say, but that's what they're doing by simply saying, well, it might cost a little more to get this done, but it's going to save lives, isn't it? It's going to save lives, but I think it's also going to help the economy because if you have sure. that confidence uh, that, you know, things are under control, then, you know, I am going to go out and spend money. I am going to go out and visit. Uh, I have two boys, uh, two sons who live in Halifax. And just to see the, the difference between how that province handled the pandemic and how we've done it uh, is is night and day where, you know, when we've been in lockdown, they've been going to restaurants, they've been doing this. Now, you know, now they're in lockdown, but it, people need to realize, you know, when case counts, case counts, not hospitalizations, case counts got up to 25 in a province, that's when they started putting in some restrictions. Uh, and that's comparable to 400 cases in Ontario. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, looking at the difference in size of population. So, you know, they acted quickly. Uh, and, you know, last time that happened, I think in January as well, they, they put in a lockdown. They said, you know, we're going to lock down for four weeks. Uh, within a week, they got it under control, and they opened everything back up in a week, only because they acted quickly and decisively. And uh, they had, you know, uh, I think the support of business because the, the businesses and the people had confidence that, you know, if we do this quickly uh, and we don't wait too long, it's going to be short-term pain. And, you know, that's that's what the the experience has been out there. So, um, you know, we need to act decisively. We need to act quickly and listen to the experts. And that's really why our organization exists. You know, we represent the voice of professional engineers. And, you know, we've been at the same table with politicians explaining, listen, if you do this, this will happen. And if you don't, this will happen. And, uh, you know, it's flabbergasted maybe the time that we've, you know, predicted things are going to happen and the government ignores us, move forward with their agenda, and then things happen. And they're like, wow, we, we didn't know that was going to happen. <laughs> So it's, uh, again, I don't know what that disconnect is. Maybe we need more engineers as politicians, uh, the way that they have it in other jurisdictions. Maybe we need more scientists uh, involved in politics as politicians so that they, when they get around the caucus table, they can explain it in plain English to the other uh, politicians and ministers. 
here's here's the way I've looked at it, and you know, I I don't expect a premier or an MPP or anybody for that matter to know everything about engineering and medicine. I, they they can't be experts in all of this stuff. I get that, but failing that, they should at least pay attention to the people that are experts. Uh, when it comes to making policy. And and I know that too many politicians, like I just mentioned a minute ago, are too much concerned about the bottom line as opposed to the efficacy of the policy. Uh, when you've got a group of people like yourselves, in, in the, the engineers, uh, the Ontario Society professional engineers saying this needs to be done to make this a safe workplace, you've got to pay attention to that. When doctors are saying this is what has to be done, they have to pay attention to that. And your Nova Scotia example, I think, is is, is bang on. Uh, you know, as you say, they did a wonderful job of handling the pandemic. They had a, in the last seven or eight days, they've had some cases, not monsters, like you say, it's not it's under fifty, I think. But immediately, Premier Rankin said, "Okay, close the schools. We're going to just hit the pause button until these numbers get down, and we're going to take some precautionary." That's that's being proactive on this, and, and as opposed to, well, boy, it got a lot worse than we thought it was. Now we have to start scrambling, uh, and and that's the yeah. kind of leadership I think we need here. And and. Uh, I'm hoping they read your letter, Sandro, because there's a lot of stuff right here and a lot of recommendations. And this is not the first time you've made recommendations to this government uh, about what they should be doing going forward on this. But, I mean, this is the game plan, and this is what they should be looking for now, is information from people like yourselves and your organization to say this is what can be done to make this situation that much better. Well, thank you for your support, Bill. We really appreciate that. Well, let me know if you have back from the, the province on this and the government on this, uh, because we need to do something moving forward. And, and I know you're talking about warehousing and, and, and schools, and that's so very important, too. But, you know, we heard some horrific stories about long-term care facilities and, and the number of old buildings uh, that are still housing our, our frail and elderly people. And I know the government's made a commitment to do something about that, and we hope they follow through on that. But a lot of that is going to have to be hiring people like your organizations to simply say, you've got to go in there. First of all, do a professional evaluation of, of, of the air quality and the systems in these buildings, and then a recommendation as to what needs to be done. You know, not all of them need to be torn out and replaced. I mean, there can be some retrofits and things like this done. But that's, you know, you, you can't do any of that stuff, Sandro, can you, until you've got the professionals on side and looking at it. Exactly. I mean, you know, if, if you have a, you know, a severe structural damage in your home, uh, you're not going to hire, you know, Bob or Sue around the corner uh, who, you know, works out of the basement to come and do it. You're going to actually hire a reputable firm because, if, you know, if something goes wrong, your whole house is going to collapse. Well, you know, our house is collapsing all around us. So you need to rely on the experts and professional engineers are specifically trained uh, and have uh, not only a moral but ethical obligation to be doing their best to protect the public and protect the environment. So, uh, you know, there are uh, some repercussions if an engineer gets it wrong. Uh, so, you, you know, so they make sure they double check, they triple check, and they build in that layer of uh, protection to make sure that, you know, if one system fails, there's a there's a backup system to make sure people are safe. So this is why we really encourage the government to listen to professional engineers. If you're going to have this assessment done, hire a professional engineer to get it done properly. Sandra, uh, on behalf of everybody, thanks so much for the, the great work that your organization has done. As I say, you've been in this uh, right from the get-go. Uh, and here's hoping that they, they listen to what you guys have written to them and, and start acting on that, too. We'll certainly stay in touch in this. But thanks again for the time today. Really appreciate it. Well, I thank you for having me on. Have a wonderful day. You, too. Sandra Perusa, of course, who's the CEO of the Ontario Society of Professional Engineers. Another group of experts, just like the medical experts, that are saying to the Ontario government, listen to us. All right, we're not vested in this. We're not trying to get reelected. We're just trying to do what's best to save lives here. 
and they've got to start heeding some of this advice. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. I want to talk about money and money for affordable housing and fix-ups. This is a, an ongoing problem in just about every city, and in, in not just on Ontario, but right across Canada. Well, City Housing Hamilton received a couple of loans, actually, over a nine-year period from the federal government, totaling $145.6 million. This is through the National Housing Co-Investment Fund. Now, the city's share is $48.5 million, uh, forming what Labor Minister and local MP Philomena Tassi describes as a historic partnership. Housing has always been a top priority for me and our government. And I very strongly believe that when our society chooses to house people, we give our fellow residents, really our neighbours, the start they need to succeed and to find a measure of prosperity. Well, it's uh, it's good news for the city and uh, hopefully for other communities as well that are still suffering from the same sorts of problems. Uh, Chad Collins is uh, the councillor for Ward 5 in the east end of the city and uh, been long involved in, in affordable housing, uh, almost as long, I guess, as he's been on council. He joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Chad, good to hear from you again. Hope you're doing well these days. I am, and I hope you're, everything's uh, well at your home as well, Bill. Nice to join you well, this morning vaccinated today so i'm feeling like a million bucks today well my arm's sore but other than that i'm I'm just fine uh i don't know how many times you and i have talked about this uh when we worked together and of course uh subsequent to that of course when i back came back to chml and started doing this but affordable housing is not a new problem it's not just housing stock it's the condition of the houses themselves and and that's been a major concern for you hasn't it it has over the years and as you reference bill a lot of the attention is on the need for new affordable housing units and Primarily, that gets most of the, the attention through through the news and in conversations in the community in terms of that long wait list that we have for people waiting for an affordable housing unit. Um, but this announcement today is about something just as important, and that's about the renovation and repair of the nearly 7,000 units that City Housing Hamilton manages, uh, owned by the City of Hamilton, but managed by City Housing Hamilton Corporation or a board. And so this announcement will go a long way over the next 10 years in terms of fixing up what I've described on your show and in other interviews as um, just a, a crisis situation as it relates to the condition of the existing units that we have. Many of them couldn't pass a property standards inspection. They're 40, 50, 60 years old. They haven't seen a lot of investment over the years when they were downloaded to the city by the province. And so this, the announcement that you've referenced uh, couldn't come at a better time and uh, is greatly going to improve over the next couple of years the living conditions and quality of life for the tenants who reside in CHH buildings. Yeah, and it's, it's important that our listeners, I guess, understand that these are two separate issues, although I get, they are tied together, certainly, uh, about mm-hmm. the number of units. And, and I know that, you know, from time to time, governments have coughed up some money for new units, and that's always welcome. That's you know, As you say, we'll talk about the wait list in a second. Uh, but that what always seems to fall behind between the cracks, though, Chad, is is fixing up the units that are run down. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's great to say, okay, build some new units, and that's wonderful. There's a photo op, and, and to do this, and and I, I'm not trying to denigrate it because it's a great idea, but mm-hmm. it's maintenance, it's doing the things, and and that comes out of the municipal budget a lot of the time, and it's a very very costly enterprise, and and boy, it it just it, Hamilton's not the only one suffering from this. Just about every city that we've looked into right now is suffering from the same thing, and that's the condition of the existing housing stock it really is and you know we we require over the next uh 20 years i think it's a 400 million dollar infrastructure deficit we have and so the funds that the federal government announced yesterday will go a long way to assist with renovation and repair of our townhomes as well as our apartment buildings and and it's for the basics as i've described it it's for elevator replacements to fix leaky roofs to 
uh, foundation repairs where we have, you know, residents living in townhouses with cracks in the floors. And, and you know, we, you've, you and I have had the discussion, Bill, over the years. Some of the units were so far gone that they remained vacant for an extended period yeah. of time. And it was for lack of resources. And, and so these investments that the federal government has provided will go a long way to ensure that uh, those fixes are in place over the next number of years. And, and there are other benefits as well. There's criteria here for improved accessibility as well as um, energy upgrades. And so there will be benefits to our seniors population and, our, and those who are disabled who live in our, our units, as well as the operating re- uh, cost reductions that come with the energy upgrades and, of course, the environmental benefits that come with greenhouse gas, gas emission reduction. Chad, when you've got a, a huge problem like this, and it's great that the money's here, and, and, and kudos to the federal government for coming through on this, where do you begin? That's a great question. We're required every five years to undertake a, um, a condition assessment of all of our buildings. Every townhouse complex, all of the singles and semis that we own, as well as our apartment buildings. And so we keep a running list by provincial law and we submit those to the, the ministry and all affordable housing providers are required to do this across the province. And so we have a very detailed account of where those investments are required. And to, to answer your, your question in a very general way, Bill, they're required right across the, the city and, and right across our inventory. As I mentioned, most of the units were constructed in the 60s, 70s and 80s. And so you can imagine, you know, for, for those buildings, most of the major components, the infrastructure components, um, are starting to fail or have uh, exceeded their life expectancy. And so these investments will help us renovate and repair those um, in, in every ward in the city. Uh, by the way, just for context, it's interesting to note, uh, as you mentioned, a lot of the units that we're using now are built in the 60s and 70s. Uh, that was back in the day when the federal and provincial governments were partners in, in, in affordable housing, uh, and th- there was a, at least a steady flow of money back in those days anyway. That, that dried up, sadly, uh, and, and for the longest time, you've been advocating for this and, and, and fighting for this, and, and finally, the government seems to have listened to this and understood. Uh, probably doesn't hurt that there was a Hamilton connection. I know that, uh, that the two local MPs, uh, Bob Bertina and Philomena Tassi, were in on the call. But the ministry, I guess, spent some time in Hamilton, didn't he? He did. He mentioned he lived in 95 Hess, which is one of the buildings we've made significant investments with Councillor Farr's leadership in, in Ward 2. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, and, and I think the mayor has uh, shared his story as well, living in the McQuestin neighborhood. Um, his, yeah. When his family arrived to Canada, he referenced that he was living in social housing. And I have my own experience living in Two Oriole Crescent in the 1970s for many years with my mother and my sister. And so... It's. Um, I think it's important to have those connections and those lived experiences it, so we can certainly understand and relate. And, you know, that unit that I lived in, in, in Two Oriole Crescent, um, th- that complex was constructed in, in the 1960s. And as you drive through the, the complex, you can start to see the wear and tear just on the exterior of the building. And you can only imagine that the interior, you know, needs just as much work. And so I'm, you know, it, it's, um, I, I've enjoyed my time on, on City Housing Hamilton and, um and I, I, I really uh, appreciate the fact that there's so much energy in our community right now. Bill, you've, you've covered this topic extensively, but we have a lot of organizations, a lot of activists, and a lot of people in this community who are calling on the federal government and the provincial government to make these types of investments. And so it's exciting when they respond in a positive way. Now, if we could just get the provincial government to the table, um, you know, it, it, it'd certainly make it a much easier um, issue to deal with and to tackle if we had all three levels of government on the same page. But unfortunately, that's not the case. Um, but at some point in time, I, I think, you know, we need to have a, a conversation about the pro- provincial um, 
role in in this and their responsibilities and 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 you know what kind of resources we need from them in order to better the situation both with the renovation and repair as well as new units you know when you start doing the repairs itself and and it's a, a daunting task but at least at least you've got the cash now to at least get this started uh it's a health and safety issue first of all for the residents but in the long term i mean this is an investment too even in existing infrastructure i mean when you do the upgrades on these places uh that increases the obviously the, the property value it also increases uh the length of time in which you can use these things too i mean if you're going to start doing retrofits on things like uh, ventilation systems and and heating systems and things of this nature uh, you're extending the life of this because i'd love to be able to say chad don't worry about it the money's going to be there to build new units uh this is a great program and the money from the feds is very very welcome here but it doesn't do anything to your wait list does it no and that's the flip side of the coin in that you know we continue to see um names added to the wait list and it was half the the wait list was about three to four thousand names long after the last uh, recession a decade ago and and it's doubled in that time. And as we start to see migration from other communities where, it's, it, you know, the cost of living is increasing, GTA specifically, we see this migration of residents moving to Hamilton, seeking more affordable accommodation. And, you know, and our real estate market isn't getting any better for those people who are looking for affordable rents and or affordable home ownership. And so that the, the demand for affordable housing units is increasing at a time when it's hard to provide them from a financial perspective. And you referenced earlier, Bill, that, you know, the the funding landscape for affordable housing has shifted over the years. 30 to 40 years ago, the province and the federal government paid the lion's share of resources to build new affordable units. And in the last 20 or 30 years, they've exited that funding scenario and, 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 and the obligations that they've historically carried. And that's fallen on the shoulders of municipalities. And so cities like Hamilton and Toronto and others across the country are now forced to, to pick up the torch if we want to see new units built, they have to come out of our own capital budgets. And so I, today's announce or yesterday's announcement story goes a long way, I think, to in bringing the federal government back to the table. And um, again, we can only hope that the province sees fit at some point in time to come back as well, because city, the city of Hamilton cannot afford, and, and neither can some of the social ho- other housing providers, um, we just can't afford to do it alone. And if we're forced to do it alone, we're going to continue to see that wait list get longer and longer. Just to give a 10-second uh, history on, on civics, too, <laughs> uh, building new units comes out of capital budgets, which means you, you have to expend money that's in your reserves or you have to borrow it to do that, and then you get a good rate, but still, it's it's a financial concern. But what's happening here in the money from the federal government, uh, that's op- what they call operating, in other words, day-to-day stuff, you know, paying your utility bills, fixing the house, all that sort of stuff. That comes out of the tax base uh, right off the bat, and 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 this is good news for ta- taxpayers in in Hamilton area right now too, because this would have been an incredible uh, burden to try to say, okay, we're going to have to do this all with our own money, and we're just going to have to look at what we can do with the tax base because that's going to be a significant increase over a long period of time. So there's there's some relief here for everybody, even if you're not involved in affordable housing. This is good news for everybody who's paying taxes in Hamilton. It really is, and we need to give kudos to the current government for coming through. I mean, I've been very critical, and you've had me on, and we've talked about the lack of investments here locally. And so the announcement made yesterday by uh, MP Pertina as well as uh, Minister Tassi was an important one for this community. And it, you're right, Bill, it, it impacts everyone here in Hamilton because as we get more resources from the federal government, it means less reliance on city budgets in order to accomplish the same. And so 
Um, you know, we we need to call the government out when they're not there for us, but when they come through for us, like they did yesterday, we need to pass along a big thank you to them because they they recognize the need here in Hamilton, and and we we really very much appreciate the investment. Well, and the concern here is, that, you know, there were instances, of course, where the government would come through with some money, and it was never sustainable, you know, like, okay, here's the fund. Uh, it would be one-time funding in a sunset clause. But time and time and time again, because uh, we've talked about this, but this lion's share of the money that was ever allocated would go to Toronto. And I know it's the biggest city in the province, et cetera, and they've got huge problems, and there's always a justification for it. But it just seems like places like Hamilton and, and Windsor and London and other places uh, kind of got scraps you know, and, and little small percentages. Uh, this is a much bigger commitment to the city of Hamilton than we've seen in a long, long time, isn't it? It is. And, and to your point there, Bill, we actually, our staff actually looked at the investment that Toronto received, and on a percentage basis, they're relatively the same. And so again, um, our local representatives have come through. They've, um, you know, they've given us an investment that's comparable to the, you know, one of the, the largest cities in, in Canada in terms of Canada in terms of their housing stock that they have. And so we're we're very appreciative of the investment, and we can only hope that others follow as we head into a, a federal election and and soon to be a provincial election as well. Well, and I'm glad you mentioned the list, the waiting list. I mean, there's over 5,000 families right now that are waiting for these affordable units. Uh, and, and uh, again, you know, a pat on the back to the federal government for doing this. But, I mean, we have to start looking at capital dollars, too, to, to increase this. Uh, there's a whole lot of answers to this. It's not simply complex. Okay, we're going to build more units, and everybody's going to be happy for the rest of their lives. Uh, you know, there's a whole lot of things to do about employment and about wages and, and living wages and everything like that. And they're all tied together in this. But no matter what you want to do, and you can talk to premiers and prime ministers and MPs about this and city councillors. Uh, it all starts with putting a roof over people's heads because if they don't have that, then they've got nothing to start with. It's a quality of life issue for certain. And, um, you know, it's a basic need that everyone has. And so to know that we have as many people on the housing wait list as we do and not unique, as you mentioned earlier, Bill, to Hamilton, this is right across the country. And so to know that the federal government is making this a priority along with transit and infrastructure and and some of the other things at the top of the list i'm 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 pleased to see where they're going the direction they're taking the rapid housing initiatives that they're undertaking in the last Mm -hmm. year hamilton's received some some fairly good funding through that stream as well there's going to be another stream as the minister referenced yesterday in terms of allowing municipalities and other housing providers to apply for um rapid housing and you know that's the the modular units that we're looking at that's the renovations that we're currently undertaking at the bottom of first place where we're converting commercial space long vacant commercial space to residential units so these types of initiatives and the and the programs that they're creating for municipalities and others bit by bit will start to chip away at the affordable housing crisis that we have both in terms of the need for new units as well as the need for renovation and repair and as you say, the good news is, is even from the minister yesterday, more to come on this, and hopefully that means more checks. Chad, as always, thanks so much for this. Appreciate the time today. Thanks, Bill. Have a good one. You too. At Ward 5 Councillor Chad Collins. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.